want to thank the uh, worship team for the song that they just sang. Amazing grace that fits everything we're going to be talking about today. I mean, it fits every service that you pretty much give. And that is God's grace and how it sustains us and how his forgiveness and his mercy reaches out to our lives. Just incredible, incredible song. I want to talk today about how God finishes what he starts. And that's an important, important lesson for us to understand. Okay, so I have an unfinished project here and it's this plane. Uh, my kids gave this to me as a gift probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, something along that line. And I've been working on it, as you can see. And then I got to a point where I had to put something, this little thing in the wing. It's called a servo, okay? And I know how to do it. I read the instructions and tried to do it and couldn't work it out and so on. So this plane has been unfinished for at least three years. And I'm a little embarrassed about that. But then before you want to shame me about my unfinished projects, uh, I'll bet you have some. I'll bet you have at least one, you know, kind of at home and it's sitting in the corner someplace or maybe five. I'm guess How many of you have at least one unfinished project in your home? Okay, I can't see your hand, so I guess it doesn't matter. Now, I'm usually good with short-term projects and I can get them done. Recently made a picnic table uh, for my daughter and, and son-in-law and finished that in a couple days. And I recently uh, had made a wood box, you know, for the family cottage and so on to put our firewood in and keep the mess away from the stove. So I can do those things. But completing something, I know this, feels great. Being able to, you know, get it done, look at it, you know, brag about it a little bit, it feels really good. But unfinished stuff, something that you promised that you do, something that you, you know, were nagged to do, something that you said that you would do, you know, and have never done it, it feels pretty crummy. A lot of reasons, I guess, why we don't finish projects. Uh, sometimes we don't finish them because we get bored or we get burned out, you know. Sometimes something else comes up, like it's a season of life thing. And I'm guessing if you had some projects going and then you had kids, you know, a lot of stuff got put on hold because kids have a way of doing that to you. But sometimes, you know, we just, you know, get busy and, or we just forget or we, we just ignore it and hope it'll go away. And, of course, it doesn't go away. God, like us, has finished unfinished projects. Unlike us, he's at work in every single one of them. He's a brilliant architect. And he's a brilliant planner. But he's always working on these things that he has done. He has a mission that he wants to accomplish on this planet. Now, here's the truth that I want you to take into your hearts and take it home with you and take it wherever you go. Never forget it, okay? That God is at work in you. And he wants to complete what he started. And that's what this passage says. Let me just read it for you. Paul's writing to this Philippian church, and we're talking about higher ground and so on. And this is what he says. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, they didn't just take from him. They, they partnered with him. They, they said this mission is too important for us to stay out of it. And they got involved with him. The first day until now, being confident of this, and this is where it gets really hopeful and helpful for us that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So I just want you to say those words with me today. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Remember that. Now, what God is doing isn't dependent on other people, you know, you know, kind of teaching him what he needs to know about something or anything like that. It's not depending on finances. God is not dependent on our finances. It's not dependent on good luck. He wants to complete 
what he started in us, but I'll tell you what he is dependent on, and that is in our cooperation. He will not crash the job site and just do whatever he wants to do. He waits for us to give him permission to invite him onto the job site and to finish what he's already started. Now, you have a story about you and God. That's why, probably why you're listening. And it could be that, you know, you're just starting to research some things about faith and you stayed away from church for a long time and we're glad you did and you can't stand Christians, whatever. There's lots of different things that go on. Or it could be that, you know, maybe you're coming back. You were one point in your life, you, you know, were a follower of Jesus and then you kind of, you know, faded away and got busy doing other things and now you're on your way back. But you have a story about you and God. He nudges you. He works in you. And that's why you're even listening to this whole thing. I have a story. You have a story. And all churches have a story too. This story, uh, this church that Paul was writing to here had a story. There was a story between him and the city of Philippi. It was a Roman colony. It was in the country of Macedonia. It was an important crossroads in terms of all the trade routes back then. And people there were proud that they were considered to be a Roman colony. They were all Roman citizens. A lot of soldiers actually moved there and were part of that. So far, so good, okay? Uh, some, they joined, you know, kind of uh, went into a prayer meeting that was down on the banks of one of the rivers that ran through the city there. A woman by the name of Lydia who sold purple, quite wealthy, you know, gave her life to Jesus Christ. And then, you know, she invited Paul and Silas to come into her home. So far, so good. And then when they began preaching the good news in that city, uh, they came across this servant girl who actually told fortunes, okay? And uh, Paul cast the demon out of her, which eliminated her ability to do the stuff that she was doing. Her boss got angry, had Paul and Silas thrown in jail, and they were beaten and jailed, okay? And in the middle of all this, you know, they began to praise God. You know, an angel came, shook the prison up. There was an earthquake, and they got freed. And the jailer and his whole family came to faith in Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the history of this church. Now, he left, okay? Paul left, and he really had not seen them from the best that we can understand until he writes this letter back to them. Now, here's what we need to learn from that experience that Paul had. Does God work through visions and dreams and miracles? Of course he does. That's part of his story with his church. But God also works through the painful, awful circumstances. And even though Paul and Silas were praising God in prison, I'm telling you, getting beaten with sticks and then chained to a wall is a painful experience. Paul knew what pain was all about. But nothing stops God. Opposition, pain, nothing stops what God wants to do. And you can tell, you know, when you read this book, I mean, the book is about joy. And you can tell that, you know, the Philippians brought Paul a lot of joy, a lot of encouragement. You know, if you've ever been texting somebody or emailing somebody or whatever you do, however you stay in contact with them, and as you're, you know, thumbing it out on your phone, and you begin to smile because you remember some great experiences that you had together and, and some fun things that you did together. It's kind of like where Paul's at, because this is what he says. He says, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. And it's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Again, remember, they were partners. They weren't consumers. They were partners with him and what he was trying to do. And this letter that he's writing is actually kind of a thank you letter because these people were extravagantly generous. Paul 
brags about them a little bit in his letter to the Corinth, the Corinthian church. And he says, these Macedonian churches, these Macedonian people, they gave more than they could actually physically give, but they did it because they were grateful for what God was up to. Now, um, so our lives are construction sites where God is at work. We share in God's grace, you know, we see ourselves as team members with him, and then he works in our lives as we cooperate and work with him. And our lives are construction sites. Now, I don't know if you remember, but there are some, like, if you drive down from the church on Markham Road, there are four condo buildings, about 20 stories high, and uh, you probably watch them under construction. Now, I can guarantee that none of you, you know, drove down Markham Road one day or up Markham Road one day, and there was a field out there, and then drove up the next day, and voila, you know, there's four 20-story buildings out there. If you remember, it took a long time, you know, and that's the whole thing. The bigger the building, the more time it takes. I, you know, built the picnic table. Probably all told, I had about two days in it, maybe a little bit more than that. You can build a picnic table. You can build a garage for your car in probably a couple of weeks. But I'm telling you, you're building a 20-story building, and it takes a long time. These things were under construction for a whole year. Uh, I was doing some research on the Twin Towers in New York City, and it took them six years to actually build these things. And that doesn't include all the time, you know, that went before that where they planned them out and made sure that they wouldn't fall down, which they, of course, did about 20 years ago. God is building a soul. Now, I don't know if you don't understand the concept of a soul, but the soul is invisible. See, when your body gets old and dies, your soul is going to live on. Your soul is going to outlast the universe. What does it take to build a soul? The soul is the most complicated thing in this, in this whole, in all of God's creation. And that's what he's building in you. Now, let's talk about construction sites. What do you know, notice first about a construction site when it starts? Well, if you know anything about it, especially a big building, they got to you know, dig a big hole and get a lot of dirt out of it. And so you see dirt all over the streets and stuff, and you see a cloud of dust, and you see cranes and stuff like this. It, it makes a mess. And there are some similarities there. When God begins a construction site in us, he has to haul a lot of dirt out of the big hole, the soul, in our lives so that he can actually begin his work. So that's, that's what he begins to do. And then there's something else called a foundation. And if you've ever seen a foundation that they're building, they're kind of ugly. You know, you get the rebar, rusted pieces of metal coming out, you know, and then they build these, these plywood forms around them so that they can pour cement, truckloads and truckloads of cement. I've never heard anybody coming back from a construction site that said, you know, I looked at the, I went and looked at, you know, the, the whole foundation that they're building, and it was a beautiful, beautiful foundation. They're not beautiful. They're, they're ugly, you know. And, and here's kind of the comparison here. There is no, you know, mess-free, you know, uh, microwavable plan for becoming a follower of Jesus and having him complete the work in you. It's a messy process by definition. All the dirt being, you know, hauled out, and then you've got to build a foundation and all the other things that God wants to do in us. And what God is building and wanting to finish in you and me shares another principle with the construction business. It takes a lot of people. I've never read about, you know, a, uh, an architect who, and this is where this drawing is all about, you know, where he's sitting out there and thinking and dreaming, I want to build this all by myself. Some architects can't even drive a nail straight, okay? 
because that's not their job. Their job is to, is to actually construct the thing. And then there's you know, people that come in, earth-moving people come in, and diggers come in to dig the holes and so on. And then steel workers come in to put in the rebar, and cement workers come in to smooth out the cement. And then you have plumbers, and you have HVAC people, and, and bricklayers, and all kinds of people who are involved in the project. And here's the principle. The principle is that the more people who are at work in the project the faster it gets done. You have one person trying to build you know, a 20-story building or a 100-story building by themselves, it's never going to get done. So the more people at work in a project, the more quickly it's going to get done. The church exists. You know, The church, the word actually means gathered, called out into a group. And the church exists because it takes more than one person to actually build a soul. God has brought people around me, and God has brought people around you in this construction process. I'm just one of the pieces, okay? Like, I talk. That's what I know how to do. I put a microphone on my face, and I talk. I'm, a, I'm one contractor. But there are musicians, there are administrators, there, there are teachers, there are you know, life group leaders, there are pastors, people with gifts of mercy, people with gifts of encouragement. All these people that come around us come on the construction site. And one of the best ways to do this is what, what we call life groups, you see. Because, you know, when you're looking at the back of somebody's head, you know, in a service, which we are not doing right now, obviously, which is why I'm recording, you know, and you have, you know, 300 people, 400 people there, there's, God can work in your heart through what's said, but the people who actually get the on-site experience are the people who, you know, are, come in as administrators and people who come in with mercy and people who come in as pastors. And these tend to be in these little platoons where we learn how to love, where we learn how to know other people and celebrate them and, and let God use his gifts on us. And I'll tell you, I just want to say this from personal experience. You know, I honestly don't know where I'd be if I hadn't had people in little service teams and, and small groups and so on all through my life who hammered away and chipped away and God has used to help construct the person that I'm in the process of becoming. Now, sometimes, you know, we come into a church and, and we look around and like, these people look pretty sketchy, you know, I don't know if I want them working on my life. You ever looked at a construction team on a job site? You know, you don't see many suits there. You don't see people coming in, you know, wearing aftershave and, and all shaved and neat and, and everything like that. These are pretty rough-looking people. Jesus knew this because Jesus was a construction worker for 30 years. He knew that these people could be rough people. But God brings this colorful assortment of people around us. And what God is able to do through these people is miraculous because he's not dependent on what they look like. He's not dependent on their skill set. He has gifted them and he has worked through them in our lives. There's something else here to note. Now, you can do remote computer work by yourself. We have a guy that comes and he, you know, works on our computers remotely and so on. Because you can do that. You can connect online and do all this stuff. You can't do that with plumbing. I don't want a plumber coming into my house to fix my plumbing, you know, and doing it remotely. Because it's hands-on stuff. It's climbing under sinks and doing stuff like that that you have to do. You can't do electricity from afar. You don't want that to happen because you're going to get electrocuted. See... And sometimes we don't want people coming on the job site. You know, it'd be nice if we could just do it remotely and do it electronically, but it doesn't happen that way. It can't be completed that way. Let's put it that way. You need people on the job site. And don't be afraid of that because, you see, I'm not a finished product and neither are you. And so don't be afraid that people are going to see the unfinished side of your life and criticize you. So what does God want to finish that he's already started in you? Like, what's he up to? What do finished people even look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want you to listen to Paul's prayer for these people. 
And this kind of gives us some insight into what God wants to do. And this is my prayer, that your love, <laughs> it's about love, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You can write love lots of different ways, okay? You can look at it, you know, in different languages, in Greek, agape, you know, you can, you know, draw a heart, you can do cursive, and some of you don't know how to do cursive because you were never taught how to do that. You know, you can do it in block letters, you can put it upside down, you can show it on a cross, you can spell it in French, you know, you can put a red cross sign. Love shows itself in lots of different ways, but the point is that that's what God wants to build into our lives. Jesus summarized everything. He says you can summarize the entire Bible. You can summarize everything that God wants to do in your life with love. Love God completely. Love Him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love other people sacrificially. Love them as you love yourself. Now, it kind of surprises us, right? Because it seems so intangible, you know. And we're doers. And we think, you know, if God's going to work in my life, it's about my career. He's going to give me this big, shiny career. And, and I'll be able to go on TV someday and tell people that I'm actually a follower of Jesus. And they'll all be surprised. Sometimes we, you know, we tend to think, well, it's all in who I'm going to marry. I'm going to marry this person. We're going to be the perfect couple and create perfect kids. Ha, huh. dream on, okay? We think that it's brains and it's good luck and productivity and endless doing. Like our, our heroes are people like Elon Musk, you know, who's got this company that seems to be going up and to the right, you know, or Jeff Bezos, who is now the richest man in the world. I mean, th we, that's what we tend to think of. But God says, and he says through Paul, he says, you can do all this stuff, and if it's not about love, if it has nothing to do with love, he says, it's nothing. It means that you will have wasted your life if love is not in the finished product of what you look like. And Paul, you know, he's this scruffy-looking, raspy little Pharisee and so on. And God had to actually, he started out with him, and then he actually had to send him back to Tarsus for 10 years to kind of shape him up and teach him that it's not about how well you speak. It's not about, you know, you being able to push other people into the kingdom. It's about love. Listen to what he writes. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy, does not boast, and it's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It doesn't fly off the handle, you know, and say, oh, I was just kidding. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, did you notice that these characteristics, none of them have to do with how you feel? You know, I'm just feeling so loving today. Love is not something that you fall into. It's intentional. It's intentionally treating people as people of worth. It's intentionally loving God with all you are. It's inconveniencing yourself. You know, when you're walking by somebody, and you see somebody in a bad place, you know, and you help them, and they, when they've gotten beaten up and left by the side of the road or, or voted off the island, you see, when love gets crucified, it says to the people driving the nails through the wrists, you know, that Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. Love extends to our enemies, according to Jesus. Love goes the second mile. Love forgives 490 times and then keeps on forgiving after that. Love, loving God means offering yourself completely to him and totally to him. It's saying, God, do in me what you need to do, whatever it takes, whatever it costs. And Paul says here that love gets defined between two boundaries. And one of them is knowledge. In other words, 
you know, you have to know what love looks like. If you want to know what Jesus looks like, read the book of Luke or read the book of John. And it tells you that's knowledge. It tells you what what love actually looks like, what God is trying to build in you. Read, you know, Paul when he writes about what love really is, how he defines it. And there also needs to be depth of, in, depth of insight. That's what he says here in this passage, where you need to know where to love. You know, love isn't driving through town and throwing candy bars out the back window. Love is about understanding where it can be applied and where it can do the most good. Now, if we were to look at the big plan that God has for your life, like if you were to look at the architectural drawings that God has, you know, that are going to be over your life, you know what the title at the top would be? Well, you can see there because I've written it there. It's saint. Now, Listen to, listen to what he writes to these people at the beginning. Paul says this. He says, To all saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. He actually writes this to you know, the people in Corinth who are actually a you know, pretty gnarly group of people and so on. He calls them saints too. And you know why he can say that? Before you freak out. See, when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, all of our sins, past, present, and future, get washed away. And when God sees our lives, it's not like he forgets that we've sinned. No, he sees that too. But he sees Jesus. He sees the perfect life that he lived. You probably have heard me say at some point, you know, Jesus lived the life I should have lived and he died the death I should have died. I'm a saint, believe it or not. I'm Saint Ken, okay? And you're a saint too. You know, you might be Saint Bernard or Saint Elsewhere or Saint Catherine. Just, you know, insert your name in there. And we can say this because God is the saint maker. He's the sanctifier. That is, he has taken the responsibility of of setting us apart and doing the work necessary to make us loving people. You know what a saint is? A saint isn't somebody who's gone to a monastery, you know, and learned how to make good beer or wine and and cheese and stuff like that because they're separated from the stuff that changes us and makes us loving people. How do you learn how to be patient with other people when there's nobody else around? You have to be around people who make you feel impatient to learn actually how to be patient. And I want to tell you what you're going to look like when God's done with you. You know what what it's actually going to look like? Let me read it for you. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So he's at work, and we tend to think, oh, yeah, well, everything's going to turn out fine, and I'm not going to have to go through any pain. That's not what it's saying here. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. That's what he's using everything in our lives to accomplish the most loving person in the the universe so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We're to look like Jesus who personified love. You know how, you know, if you go by a construction site, sometimes, you know, they have the pictures of the building, this big, tall, you know, tall steel and glass tower. All you can see coming from around the, you know, above the, the plywood walls is kind of a crane sticking up there and maybe some dirt and stuff like that. So if Jesus was putting a construction wall around around your life, this is what he would say, coming soon, Jesus. Because that's what you're going to look like. That's the finished work. That's what he's trying to do to make you like Jesus Christ. And that's why God tells us that he wants us to love him and put him first and love others as we love ourselves. Because that's what Jesus did. That's how he lived. So let me just be clear, okay, about what the high road is in this whole thing and what the higher ground is in this explanation. I'll tell you what it is. It's my confidence. That's what Paul says. I am confident 
that God is going to complete the work that he started in you. And it's your confidence, it's my confidence in God's plan, in God's, in God's work in our lives. It's this deep sense of peace in all that we go through that God is accomplishing something. It's the sense of hope that we have that God is going to finish what he started in us. And it may be painful, and it may at times be difficult, but he's going to finish the job. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. And I'll tell you, the only alternative to faith is the arrogance of thinking that we can just accomplish on, on our own, accomplish this on our own, that we have a better plan than God does. You know, it's getting discouraged when God doesn't follow your plan. Well, it's, it's not his plan, it's your plan. And he knows what he's doing. Now, I'm not sure why, but sometimes there's been this kind of this negativity in, in you know, and sometimes in communities, you know, where they're followers of Jesus, and it kind of goes unchallenged, you know. And you need to understand that it's alien to everything that Jesus said. That it's good work that he's doing in us with the emphasis on good, you know. And it doesn't, you know, it's not about, you know, why, you know, I feel so bad about myself, you know, and, and everybody has it so much better than me. Well, God is at work in you, and it's unique in what he's doing. And he's going to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. You know, at its core, this letter to the Philippian Christians is about joy. Joy is is basically, and I'm going to talk about more about this next week, it's this vital, in other words, absolutely necessary for life, joy, vital hope. It's this deep-settled peace, you know, this life-giving optimism about the future that even when it's painful, God is doing something. And it's this bedrock, you see, because if you don't have that, then you're going to be on this roller coaster. It's up and down, up and down, up and down road of, you know, maybe he will, maybe he won't. And I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that God is thoroughly good? Do you believe that he knows what he's doing, that he knows what's ahead, that he can change the course of things, that he can change the course of history if he needs to, that he cares about all the stuff in your life and that he's at work in them, that he's going to triumph over all of history? See, Jesus Christ is either Lord of all or he's not. And if he is, then there's every reason to live for hope. If he's not, you know, then we're all in trouble, right? See, if he can take his son from a cross, a place of absolute humiliation and disgrace, and he can turn the cross into something that we put on top of church, on top of churches, and put on tops of the graves of people as a symbol of hope, then God can do anything. He raised his son from the dead and made him the Lord over all of his creation. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is victorious over sin and death. You see, and if that's true, then, you know, how can we whine and complain? Oh, everybody's so lucky. I can't see the good in all this. I mean, because God is at work. Gloomiest forecasts in the Bible, you see, are not about people who got into trouble. Not about God. They're about people who have the arrogance to think that they can set everything up for themselves and make it happen. God says to his people at the gloomiest part in their history, this is what he says, I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And this is foreign. I'll tell you, this is foreign in a world, you know, where kind of a show-me-the-money kind of world where people will put their faith in money and put their faith in success and power, and yet when it comes to putting their faith in God, it seems like it's this totally, totally foreign concept. People who won't believe that God is in charge of everything and that God controls all of history and that his love and grace drives all he, all he does. You know what they're left with? They're basically left with chance. 
In other words, you know, it's like good luck. And if that's true, then that means that you are responsible. If you can't believe in God's goodness and his power to orchestrate things for your good, then you're left with just coming up with all the stuff that's going to cover all the, you know, the things that happen like COVID-19, which has basically thrown our world off, off of its course. This is about faith. In Hebrews, the writer, we don't know who that was, but it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Not unlikely, not 50-50 chance, you know, it's impossible. You know why? It's because God can never complete his, his plan in people who do not respect his wisdom and don't respect his power and don't respect his ability to do something in their lives. So will you let him into your life? Will you let him do what he needs to do? Again, you see, the problem in this specific verse that we're talking about here, it's in the word good. It's the good work part that takes faith. It takes faith to believe that. And that's why the Bible, you know, doesn't come to us in form of kind of a self-help book. It's a form of story. Remember Abraham and Sarah? Remember God's promise to them that they're going to have a baby and that gonna, their progeny is going to be greater than the sands of the sea and the stars in the universe and so on? So it's 25 years, okay? It's a point where Abraham and Sarah are both buying, you know, they're buying Depends and Pampers, you know, at the store and baby food because there's not a tooth among the three of them that are kind of running around the tent out there in the desert. Hard to believe over 25 years, but God did it. Remember Joseph? Man, it seemed like he got slammed dunk every turn, you know. He's climbing out of the hole that his brothers put him in, and he gets slammed down again, and he's climbing out of the hole, you know, that, you know, Pharaoh's, or not Pharaoh's wife, but Potiphar's wife put him in, and he gets knocked, and, it, and, it's, and God works and works, and yet what we find out is that God is shaping Joseph for a role that will change the history of his people, that will save his people. Even Jesus, you know, you think about this, you know, it tells, you know, tells Mary that she's going to have a baby, she's going to be a virgin, and there are angels that are dancing across the sky that night proclaiming the glory. Jesus didn't do a single miracle for 30 years, stayed at home with his mom, you know, and, you know, and, and work construction. Can you imagine what she's thinking? And yet, God split history through this little boy as he grew up to be a man and a savior. Now, here's what I know. I know enough about life to know that some of you have been really, really, deeply disappointed by life and maybe disappointed by God, too. And I have been, too. You know, you trusted him, and from a limited perspective of the world system like ours, you know, it, none, of, none of the things happened as you hoped and prayed that they would turn out. And right now you've got this construction hole in your life, and it doesn't seem like there's anything good coming out of it, you know? And the workers are kind of stealing the tool, tools out of it, and the safety inspectors are giving failing grades, and you're asking yourself the question, what is this all about? Or what was that all about? And I've been there. I've been there. A number of years ago, our family uh, felt God calling us to adopt this little eight-year-old girl and Lori specifically had a had a dream about it in the night and her life had been flipped upside down by the brutal murder of her dad and this had just totally flattened her mom and made her incapable she felt of caring for this girl and so we took a deep breath and we said yes we'll do this okay and then we started on this incredible roller coaster ride. I'm telling you, it was ups and downs. On two separate occasions, just when we were about to sign the adoption papers and things were about to come through and she was to come into our home, you know, everything fell apart. 
On one occasion, you know, it was her birthday. We had the, the birthday, you know, uh, sign across the front of the house, you know, and we had, you know, the favorite meal was in the oven and the birthday cake was made and the candles were on it and, and the presents were all wrapped. And then we get a call. But the whole thing was off. Hey, you talk about the bottom falling out of things. And then suddenly, six months later, you know, things finally came together, you know, and we were able to pull this off and sign the adoption papers. And we thought, finally, after all this work, this is going to be what we're supposed to do. And then three weeks later, you know, everything that we'd worked so hard for and prayed so hard about totally collapsed. An unprecedented move, the judge reversed the adoption. And this little girl that we'd loved and we'd, you know, brought into our, included in our family, uh, left for the last time. We've never heard from her again. And the question to ask is, what was that all about? Now, I don't know all the details around this, but I tell you that God took us out to the edge, took us out to a really uncomfortable place, and he began to work in our lives. We got closer to him than we'd ever been. I do know that in the process something happened in me that made me more open and more loving and more compassionate than I'd been. It ultimately resulted, as many of you would know, in us adopting this amazing, beautiful little girl, Selena. She brought us a lot of fun, you know, and, and brought us a lot of joy and two beautiful granddaughters along the way. So that's all good. Now, without the painful experience that we went through, that would have never happened. And I see that. On Selena's adoption announcement, we posted this verse from Jeremiah 29. This is the message version of it. I'll show up and take care of you, as I promised. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future that you hope for. When you call on me, when you come up to me and pray to me, I'll listen. And then it happened again. 16 years ago, this church, the Olive Branch, was birthed through you know, heartbreaking, bloody, difficult experience that made us ask the question, what was that all about? And I'm telling you, it, was so, it felt so incredibly unfair. It took our family right out to the edge of disillusionment. It was, it was a point where I wasn't sure that we would ever recover from. And yet, once again, God made it clear that he knows exactly what he's doing, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't like the pain. Lori has come out of these experiences with a phrase that we've kind of adopted as a couple. And it's, God, you don't owe me an explanation. And that's true. He doesn't. This verse that we've been looking at this morning, honestly, I'm friend, has, has, is the hope of my life. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion and to the day of Christ Jesus. And I know God well enough to know that what anybody does to me, no matter how I fare, whether or not it hurts, his work is good. Because I believe, you see, I realize that his, act, his work is actually in me. It's not in the circumstances. It's not in, you know, adopting a child necessarily. It's not in, you know, having a church that turns out perfectly like you dreamed that it would. And every builder, every artist, you see, believes this. Don't judge a work of art until it's done. Don't come along and begin to criticize something that's not finished yet. Because God has to make a lot of cuts to complete what he does. My dad made this for me years ago. And if you look at it, you know, 
uh, it's just a piece of wood. But if the wood could talk, you know, and you're carving it out and cutting it out and so on. Uh, unfortunately, you see, when it comes to wood, you have to use this, not this specifically, but you have to use something sharp, you know, and you're cutting away. And if the wood could talk, it would say, ow, ow, what are you doing? Stop that. It's hurting me. And yet, you know, when you get completed, this is what it's supposed to look like, at least in us. It's supposed to look like Jesus. And it takes some work for God to pull that off. Now, I have some questions for you as we complete this, okay? The first one is, where are you tempted to give up in your life? Where are you tempted to just throw the thing away, walk away from the construction site and say, God obviously isn't doing anything here. Where specifically in your life have you given up? Or are you about to give up on what God is trying to do in you? Because you want to identify that. And I just want to ask, would you, would you let him back on the construction site? Would you allow him to do to finish what he started? Because he wants to, and he will. But he won't do it apart from your consent, apart from you willing, you being willing to allow him back on the site. And the second thing I want to say is, will you take the high road? Will you take the high road of faith? Will you believe God? Will you take him at his word that what he's doing in you is good and that he's going to finish it? And you may never fully understand all the details, but what he's doing is good. And for some of you, the question this morning or whenever you're listening, whether you're in your car or whether you're you know, in your living room or you know, by your computer, wherever you're listening, the question for you is, will you actually let him on the construction site? Will you actually invite him into your life so that he can make you the kind of person that you want to be and that he's created you to be? Let's pray. God, I know that this is scary, inviting you down into the messy area of our lives, letting you haul the dirt that sometimes accumulates in our souls and in our hearts and this part of us that, that determines what we do. And I pray that, God, we would believe you enough, believe in your goodness, believe in your power enough to invite you onto the construction site, believing that you have a plan for us, you always have, and you want us to look like Jesus, the most beautiful person who ever lived on this planet. Give us the faith to invite you into our lives, into our hearts, onto this construction site and let you finish what you've started. In Jesus' name, amen.